Genesis chapter 8. We are moving right along. Just thinking another three years, we'll be through with Genesis. <laughs> but we get everything off the bone, don't we? We don't leave a single bite left. Mm. Mm, thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. This chapter is a very special chapter to all of us. I mean, it's, it's part of our history. It's part of our heritage. You know, a lot of times when we, we think back, you know, sometimes we think, well, this is, this is the, you know, the history for Israel or for the Jews. And we forget that God, from the very beginning, there was one seed that would come. And through that seed would be the man, Christ Jesus, our Savior, our Lord. And so, if you look back in verse, chapter 7, verse 24, it said, And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Long time, isn't it? Can you imagine? Noah had never seen rain. He's sitting on this ark. First of all, didn't even know what an ark was until he built it. He followed the diagram. Ah, oh, that's an ark. You know, he's looking at it, kind of surprised. He's on there. God seals up the door. In almost six months, right? Five, five months like that, specifically. Five months, 150 days. We believe it's 29 and a half days, somewhere around that. When we go back to the Hebrew calendar at that time, it would have been, at least the best to our knowledge, to be able to pull out somewhere between 29 to 30 days in a given month under a Hebrew calendar. And so if you look at that, and you think about it, here he was, five months, and it just kept raining. You ever wonder if Noah was like, so is this going to ever end? I mean, he knew he was told 150 days, but, but, I mean, did he really understand what was happening? Because he had never seen rain before. Did he understand that when he was going to get off that ark, that everything was going to be different? That the world that he knew was, was completely perished at that point. I mean, I, I think so many times we, we, we take the ark and we... We kind of glance over it and we, we kind of think, oh, that's a good bathtub toy, or we put it on a, a wall in a nursery. But we, we don't stop to think that this was a door of salvation for Noah from worldwide destruction. It's a type for us, for Jesus Christ. It was typology right in the very beginning that we could see that God provides a way, a Savior. And so... You know, when we read, you know, 1,656 years from the beginning of creation, we see this worldwide flood. And it said that the waters prevailed on the earth. And you think about the features. I mean, if you, you know, you ever go in your backyard after a really strong downpour, or even during the middle, I don't know about you, I have some of the best memories growing up uh, in our home, my, the home I grew up in, my childhood home when it would just downpour. And, you know, I used to love to just run outside in the rain, make a big mess in the mud, and then run into the fresh-mopped kitchen floor that my mother just, what are you doing? You know, the whole thing. You know, you got an Italian mom. They know how to use the broom, the mop, the whole thing. They're like ninjas, you know. They, you know. She could, man, she was fast. I never saw the woman move so fast. But anyway, the point is, I, I can remember that. But you know what I remember? I remember the smell of the rain. You know what I'm talking about with a, a fresh rain? We're getting ready to move into that season of spring. Hopefully very soon. I hear we might even get snow some this week in a little bit. I'm going, come on. But we're going to get into spring, and you know we're going to get into that weather where we get a lot of the rain, hopefully. Helps the crops grow and everything. But after a really heavy downpour, and you look in your backyard, a lot of times you'll notice that there's sort of sediment that's kind of been moved from one area of the yard to the other, or sometimes even little like valleys that have been created through there just from the heaviness of the rain and how it's moved 
And that's just a, that's just a downpour. I mean, this, this deluge, this flood that we read about, we really can't perceive it because we've never seen anything like this. I mean, the firmament, the entire sphere of water that was in the firmament, the water that was in the earth across the core that had risen up because of the deep and from the top, which is why we have the earth covered with 71% water today. I mean, think about that. Before that, that, that was not there. I mean, we didn't have rain. You had, you had a form of evapotranspiration that occurred. That, that's how the, the you know, it was, a, it was a mild climate. You know, maybe it was 75, 80 degrees all year long. No seasonal change, no winds. I mean, it's fundamentally different. You know, Noah's probably going, why did I get on the boat? You know, you might be thinking, what am I doing? You know, because when he got off the boat, all of a sudden, not too long, if you've been to Mount Ararat or you know that area of Turkey, it snows. And he's probably looking, what is this stuff? First rain and, whoa, and he started freezing. He's going, oh, no, 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 I want to get back on the boat. Take me back to where I was. But, you know, what's important to look at this is this was large scale. I mean, we see stratif stratified sedimentary rock all over the world. You can travel all over the world and see this rock. They call them geological columns, where you can go down and see the layers that have been preserved because it happened so quickly. That's why I say we really can't understand. Anybody, how many of you have been to Niagara Falls or a place where you've seen a very large, few of you, okay, good. I grew up an hour and a half from there. For, for us to make a trip to Niagara Falls was kind of like, you know, you guys going to Philly, right? Or to Pittsburgh, maybe, very close. You know, and I, I can remember, or maybe better yet, Hershey, you know, or something like that. I can remember just simply going to Niagara Falls and, I mean, you watch the power of the top waves coming down and it pours down into the bottom basin there. The power of water and what it can do and how every year it continues to erode that rock away. And again, picture the 71% or more of water that we understand on the earth today. Picture that at one time for five months straight coming down. The landscape would be forever changed. And so, you know, it's interesting when we look at the, the process that would form, we know it was rapid and continuous. How do, how do we know that? Well, first of all, the Word of God says so. Praise God for that. That's it. That's all we need. We didn't need anything else. But it's interesting. There's something called the hydraulic analysis or hydraulic analysis. And really that analysis is performed on a computer and uses computer modeling. And the idea behind it is it measures flows and pressure. And what it does is it looks at a system. So if you take a system and you want to model it and you, and you inject different flows and pressures, it tells you within that particular system what the different conditions might look like or how would they behave. And it uses statistical analysis and modeling to do this. So using hydraulic analysis, they've confirmed what God had already said. But they confirmed that it would have been minutes before the whole area of Earth began to change from a top, you know, topo topographical, if I can say it that way, the mountains, the valleys, and everything. Minutes. This didn't take months, even five months to complete. I mean, through five months of duration, we continue to see erosion and sedimentary process, but, but fossilization happens and occurs very quickly. See, that, that's how it has to, because if it didn't, you would have what? You'd have decay. And then you would have not only decay, but you would have scavengers that would come through and eat you know, what was decaying there. But we don't see any of that. You go back to the fossil records, it's just as we would expect. It's, it, it basically has what they call 
um, conformable strata. That's the exact term that scientists would use. And what it talks about when you look at conformable strata, I had to write this in my notes because it was so interesting. It shows how when you have deposits, one deposit proceeds after another. And you would expect that. And you would also expect in the deposits that some of the lower layering fish would be towards the bottom and some of the more you know, wildlife animals like that would be towards the top because what are they going to do? If you throw a dog into water, what does he do? Doggy paddle, right? Tries to, doesn't want to drown, tries to stay to the top, right? You take a fish and you start stirring up the water in a fish tank. Where does the fish go? To the bottom. Tries to hide maybe in some... So it makes perfect sense to us. If you had a worldwide disaster, a worldwide flood like this, and that's exactly what the fossil record shows. This couldn't have happened over millions of years. It couldn't have happened over thousands of years because it's what, like I said, it's what, it's what we call conformable. Now, there's something that geologists and evolutionists use, and it's called unconformity. And what that does is if you start to see gaps within this layer, this column, then they would say, well, that's unconformity, and that would show us there's a time gap. Well, when the geologists go back and they go to some of these canyons and they, they, they pull out some of these you know, strata and some of this rock and they look at all this, they go, huh, this is conformable strata. This doesn't line up with our worldview and evolution of millions of years. Huh, I wonder if there's something wrong with this rock. <laughs> I mean, that's their answer. It's, it's the rock. It's, it, it can't be our philosophy or presupposition, right? But this is, what, this is how... I, I mean, the irony of it all. I mean, the irony of it all. And so, you know, it's just, it's a, it, the only way this could have happened is through a worldwide flood. And again, as I mentioned, this, this explains the fossils and the sedi sedimentary, you know, um, deposits that you would see, as well as, like I said, the preservation of fossils. So, you know, as we, as we start to think about this tonight, as we look at Noah's deliverance here, and we look at the geo geological structures, I mean, think about the mountains, Grand Canyon. Right? Anybody who's been out in Arizona, out west, you look at, oh my. I mean, the canyons, the plains. Many of this can all be attributed to this great deluge, to Noah's flood. So when it says, and the water prevailed on the earth 150 days, it has a whole lot packed in there. It's not just, well, that's it, 150 days, it just rained. Oh no. Everything was fundamentally different. Everything was changed forever. So as we read in our passage tonight, it will be chapter 8, and we're going to be going again um, all the way through chapters uh, 8, excuse me, verses 1 through 22. And I'll read just the first few passages to get us started, and then we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll go line by line. <laughs> then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heavens were also stopped, and the rain from the heaven was restrained. And the waters receded continually from the earth, and at the end of the hundred and fifty days the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Then he sent out a raven, which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned to the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. She put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent the dove out from the ark. 
Then the dove came in to then they come in, excuse me, then the dove came into him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plugged olive leaf was in her mouth. And no one knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days and sound out the dove, which did not return again to him any more. And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, boy, God is very exact, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on earth. You know, you guys, as we're reading this, I'm thinking the same thing. Why couldn't they let the creep, you know, leave the creeping things on the ark, right? I mean, why they got to bring the creeping? So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every, there it is again, creeping thing, every bird and whatever creeps on the earth according to their families went out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. That's a lot there in this one chapter. So let's pray and then we'll... We'll get into it with the remaining time. There's a lot to go through tonight. <laughs> Father God, we just thank you that you have given us so much detail here, Lord. This is, this is more than just a historical account, Lord God. We get to, to see the very act of, of just salvation that you brought to Noah through his family, his, his children, Lord, through this flood. And you did it in all the preparation that, Lord, you knew there would be a line, a seed, the seed, your son, the branch, Jesus Christ would come forth. God, thank you. Thank you for the remnant. For without that, Lord, we would not be here. We, wouldn't, we would not know existence, God. And, and Lord, we certainly wouldn't be in eternity with you forever. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to a dying and lost world, Lord. Thank you for your work on the cross. Lord, lest we ever forget what you've done for us. God, may we never, ever forget and as we study this tonight, Lord, open our eyes to see the power and majesty of, of your providence, of your protection, God, and how you've done this for all of us, that we might be heirs and co-heirs, Lord, with you, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. We pray all this in your holy name. Amen. So as we read again in verse 1, it said, Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and on all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided, and the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. So first of all, I mean, we begin to see God acting on Noah's behalf here. I mean, this is really what it is. It's, it's, it's a... It's an anthropomorphism, I guess is the best way to say that. Many of you probably know what that is. It's the idea of an attribute um, of a god or something non-human to a human likeness or emotion. And that's exactly what we see here. God certainly didn't forget Noah 
and his wife and his children like that. It's not what it means here. It's trying to explain it in conditions or ways that we, or attributes you might say, that we would understand as humans. And so what it's telling us is that God began to act again. If you have your Bible and a pen, act on Noah's behalf. That's, that's what this means in the Hebrew. That's what it's connoting. He's acting on Noah's behalf here. Okay. God never forgot Noah, and he, he went through all this provisions of an ark and everything else he did. He certainly didn't build all this to go, where's that guy again? What's his name? Noah? Huh? What happened here? No. I mean, clearly we knew uh, what he was planning, and that was to start a brand new world. I mean, that's really what he's doing here. We don't think of it that way, but that's exactly what he's doing. He's starting a brand new world here. You know, you, you got to remember, the old world perished. How do we know that? Well, take your Bibles and let's turn to 2 Peter th chapter 3, verse 6. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 6 in your Bibles. Don't you love that the Word of God interprets the Word of God? It's perfect. It's wonderful. The pearls that you can string, the wisdom that's just right in the very pages of our hand. It's supernatural. So if you look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 6, it says, By which the world that then existed perished, being what? Flooded with water. So we get, we get, an, eye, you know, we get a, an exact account there from Peter. That's exactly what happened. The old world had perished. So what are the three specific actions we see here in verse 1 and 2 that God takes? There's three specific things we see if you're taking notes. God made what? A wind to pass over the earth. You see, God knew how to make the water subside. He, he wasn't challenged. God wasn't turning around and trying to figure out, hey, what can I do to try to make this work out here? And how can I, how can I turn around and figure out, what am I going to do with all this water? What am I going to do with the flood? How am I going to make, you know, how am I going to, how am I going to turn around and get rid of the waters and, you know, it's as high as Mount Ararat? He wasn't struggling to figure that out, was he? You see, he took a wind. Now, that's got to be interesting to Noah because Noah had never seen wind. All of a sudden, you feel this pressing again. You've been on boats, some of you. You know what I'm talking about. You get a strong wind on a boat. What's it feel like? Whoa, you know, you get your sea legs. That's the term sea legs, right? You start feeling like you're rocking on the boat back and forth, right? Little nausea, the whole, th sorry, I don't mean to bring that back for any of you, but, but you know what I mean. I mean, that's what you're feeling like, right? It's like, oh! Noah had never understood that. He didn't know what that was. And all of a sudden, he hears this strong wind. I mean, he's probably thinking, rain? Now what's this? I don't even know what to call it. You know, resh. That's what it is in the Hebrew. It's actually a similar term, similar word to what we see right in the beginning of Genesis when we see the spirit that hovers above the earth that way, that's void. It's a similar, it connotes the same thing here. This wind, the spirit, the wind like that. Now clearly we know it's not talking about the spirit of God that way. No, we know in this context it's, it's literally a wind. And it's through this wind that basically he uses this natural phenomenon, or what I guess I'd call a new phenomenon, to go ahead and, and start to, to drain and drive these waters down. And again, totally new concept. I mean, they had uniform temperatures in the antediluvian period, you know, prior to the flood. So there was no wind that way. There was no strong gusts. You know, us that live in central PA, we know what strong gusts are. I mean, you can get five, 50 mile an hour winds after a severe rainstorm or before rainstorm, and, you know, it, it could shake the house, and you feel like, oh man, I'm, you know, is this thing coming down or what, right? I mean, 
this way stronger winds than 50 miles an hour. And, and here Noah is, and he's in the boat, and he's like, I'm in the ark, the animals. And the animals are hibernating. He's probably looking at the animals going, what are they doing? You know, and, and I imagine the kids are all looking at each other, and, and they're probably looking to Dad. Dad, what did God tell you about the wind? He didn't mention that part. You know, he, just, he didn't mention that part. You know, he's just, he's, it's all by faith. He's trusting the Lord. He's just, he's just there, but here it is. And the water spear from the firmament, you know, is now gone. I mean, the, so all of a sudden, remember, he, we had that blanket of water, that canopy, if you will, that water barrier? That was all just emptied out. So you saw, seven, you know, between the, the great deep and that was emptied out. So now all of a sudden, we got very differential sharp temperatures. I mean, we've got temperatures that all of a sudden, you know, maybe 90, maybe 50. I mean, well, it's the world we live in today. We know what, it, we know what temperatures are. I mean, what did we have two weeks ago? We had 70 degrees. And then I think a couple days ago, it was like 25 or 28. We get it. Noah, all foreign to him. Never had experienced anything like this. So when it says God made a wind to pass over the earth, it's a simple statement. But behind that simple statement is a lot of change. And Noah's trying to process all this in his family. And, and, you know, the difference between the temperature and the equator and the poles, none of that existed. It was all uniform. Second thing, second thing that we see here. He stopped the fountains of the deep. Remember the water of the deep that he had brought up that had, had, was the second place where he had brought water from, not just from the, the firmament in the top, but also the deep? It says, you know, you think about this, it, it would change the landscape. Because now that he's stopping that water, what happened to the, the caverns, the areas that we would look at that were at one time pressurized, that no longer are pressurized, and you just had this heavy downpour? In PA, you know, in New York, I didn't, we didn't really have these, but these sinkholes. In PA, I was out near, I think, uh, south of Chambersburg, and somebody was talking to me about a sinkhole, and I thought, oh my, what's that? And they were going over and they were showing how their front yard a portion of their yard just sank in. And they said, well, it's not uncommon in Pennsylvania. There's areas where the whole house can just go right in the ground. And I'm thinking, how's that work? I mean, I, 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 I mean, is there such an insurance for that? I mean, what do you, you, you got to, I mean, how do you, I mean, you can bail out of the boat. How do you bail out of the house? I mean, like, what do you do? Do you get a notice? I don't know how it happens. But, I mean, seriously, that's scary stuff to me. I'm sitting there going, the whole house? But you think about it. That's exactly what was happening to the, to the ground, is that this pressures, pressurization changed. There was no pressure there. So all of a sudden, the soil that was once compacted, with all that water and all that rain, created air gaps and everything like that. And so immediately, we see these basins created. Today, we call them oceans. But we didn't have that before. Lakes, rivers. Today, we have man-made lakes, right? Man-made areas where you know certain parts of Florida, they dig down, right? But there's a very low water table. So now we understand water tables and aquifers and all. But when we look back here, this is where it was all created. It was all created right here. And, and we can see it and we can, we can understand it. And it's like the Lord's given it to us and saying, hey, this is how we stop the deep. And, and this is where sea bottoms came from, rivers and everything. So when our kids say, well, you know, mommy, daddy, whatever, where, where did the rivers, where did the oceans come from? Let me take you to Genesis chapter 8, because it's all right there. And if you turn with me to Psalm 104, the Lord gave us another place again. The Word interprets the Word. Go to Psalm 104. Now, the first half of this psalm up to chapter, or I would say up to verse 5, really talks more about the creation that we see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 there. 
But as we begin to move in chapter 6, clearly this is talking, I would say verses, not chapter 6, verse 6 through 9, this speaks directly, directly of this flood. It says, You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the voice of your thunder they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys. You see, it tells us exactly how it happened. To the place where you founded for them. We call them seas and oceans today. You have set boundaries that they may not pass over. That they may not return to cover the earth. Isn't that amazing? How God has designed this and, and he prepared and planned a way. In Psalm 104, he tells us how he prepared for these big basins and these, these areas that would capture and catch all this water. And then it would be used later on to support life. Because how much, I think it's 80 or something percent of all the air we breathe. Remember we talked about it in Revelation when we talked about the destruction in the Great Tribulation of what would happen in the eventual thing, you know, things that would, would go out, specifically the seas that would be destroyed, the living water, the fresh living water. In the, during the seven-year period of the, the Great Tribulation, we talked about plankton. We talked about all those things. And 80-something percent of our air comes from the plankton in the ocean. It, it doesn't come from trees. We love trees. I love trees. But it's not from all the trees. It's the plankton. It's the oceans. And so we talked about when the oceans are destroyed, remember in Revelation, how what that's going to do for those that are you know, trying to breathe, they're going to feel like, you know, if you've been on a mountain, 15, 14,000, maybe you went skiing or went to a back bowl in Aspen or somewhere like that, and you're doing the, you know, you know, snowboarding, whatever, in the back bowls, and you get up there, you hike up there. Boy, by the time you get up there, you feel a little tired, don't you? Kind of little, your air's a little, whew, kind of air like, well, that's, that's because you're going to a higher elevation. Your oxygen level and the amount of oxygen in your blood changes. Well, God had prepared for all of us here today. He created these vast oceans with these plant life that could grow, that could sustain and produce air that would absorb the carbon dioxide and, and give off oxygen. I mean, do you see how amazing it is? That's why when people talk about evolution, do you see how foolish it is? When, when you look at it in light of what God had planned, I mean, he's draining the water, right? He says he stopped the fountains of the deep. It's a simple sentence. But behind it, look at all that he was doing. Our oceans today, you'll never look at the ocean the same way again. It was a basin to capture all that, that water from the flood. And then he said the third thing here. He said he stopped the windows of heaven. In other words, rain was restrained. So he emptied much of that water out. Remember that, that blanket or that, that sphere up there? That's the third thing we see. He did all three of those. And just from those three actions, we see incredible shifts and changes to the earth that you and I take for granted today. We're born, we, we see earthquakes, volcanoes, all these things that happen. We see beautiful mountainscapes, you know, the, you know, the whole area. We all oh, look how beautiful that is. And that was all created through the flood and through the massive amount of energy and force and then the winds that blew it. And yet, we look at it, and don't we say how perfect it is? I mean, often we go hiking, don't we? We go up to the Appalachians, we would go to the trail, and we'll hike all the way from Maine to Georgia, and we look at all that God's created, and, and, and none of it was coincidence or by an accident. It's all got a perfect plan, a divine purpose, and much of it's to sustain life for you and I. 
Look at verse 3. It says, and the waters receded continually from the earth. You know, it's not like, you know, you ever been in a, a tub or, 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 you know, and you, you undo the water and you slowly see a siphon. It starts to kind of make that vortex of a, of a kind of moving cyclical type water and it's going down and kind of pressurizes and hits the top, pulls air down, creates a vacuum. That's what's happening in your bathtub. You probably never cared about that. But anyway, but that's what's happening, okay? Well, now picture that with pressure. So there are actually tubs that you can buy today where you can hit a button and what it does is it creates a vacuum seal and it pulls that right down really quick and it's got a lot of energy, a lot of force. I guess people can't wait for the tub to drain naturally so they hit the button. I, you know, I'm sure there's a good reason for it. I don't know what it is and I'm sure somebody that hears this on the radio, I have no doubt, will write me a letter and tell me what it's for and I thank you already. Thank you very much. So, it says, and the waters receded continually from the earth, and at the end of the 150 days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested. Now, again, this term rested, we've seen this concept before. When in Genesis did we see a rest? This is really the second major time we see the word rest. On the Sabbath, the Shabbat. Remember when God says for six days and then on the seventh day he rested? Different Hebrew word. Different word in Hebrew, though. Important to know. Different word in Hebrew. But it's talking about a resting. So here it is, this ark. And I love that the Lord uses the term rest. He brings it in gradually, and it's on Mount Ararat, and he rests it right in the perfect place that God had designed. It's quite remarkable when you think about it, because, first of all, you look at the expression in the Hebrew for the draining that we just had read in verse 3, this receding, right? That Hebrew, this indicates a very quick, like rapid... Um, subsidence or draining. I don't know how else to say it. It's very quick, almost like it's pressurized. And yet, you ever take something and you pressurize it and what happens? It's a strong force. What about what's next to it? Doesn't it want to pull it right into that, right? You ever been in a boat or you start to get caught in a current? If you've been swimming in the ocean and you're caught in a current or an undertow, what's it want to do? It pulls you right down and you could be an excellent swimmer. There's a lot of force behind it. And yet, God rested the ark on the mount. I mean, just, just think about that. It, he, he took all the natural forces, everything that should have gone on. That ark should have gone right to that vortex, wherever it was pulling down in those basins, and it should have went right there and followed it. But what did it do? It ended up on the highest mountain in that area, Mount Ararat, near somewhere around 16,000, somewhere I think it's 945, all the way up, some say 16,000, you know, um, 950, let's just say 17,000 feet in elevation. This is a high mountain, and he places it and rests the ark there. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, Mount Rarat is a, a snow-capped, endorment compound volcano in the eastern extremity of Turkey, right? It consists of two major volcanic cones, Greater Ararat, which is what I just described, the highest, and then also this Armenian plateau that's kind of to the north or south, because this is more the east, kind of west side there, of Turkey. Now, I couldn't help but thinking about this. If, if it was God's design to preserve the ark, because I've sort of said this before, what a great testimony that would be, that is, as we go through and we get closer and closer to the end times, we're in the end times, but as we continue to get closer and, and God wants a revelation, he wants to remind people of judgment that's coming. Remember, you know, we talked about Methuselah's name, right? After he dies, judgment comes. That's what, it, that's what his name connotes. 
And here he is, he's given an ark, and this ark symbolizes a type of salvation, getting the family through. Jesus Christ is going to come back for his church. We're going to be harpazoed. We're out of here, man. As soon as that trump blows, in a blinking of an eye, less than 200 milliseconds, an eye can blink. That's how fast we're going to be out of here. You won't even be able to comprehend it, and you will be in the air caught up with Jesus Christ. Wonderful. Ready. Sign me up now, man. But So it's going to happen that quick. And you think about it. Here, there's going to be the church is gone, the Holy Spirit, the hand is going to be you know, removed. So we think it's restraining now. It's hard to believe that God's restraining now, as evil and wicked as things are going on. And we've talked about the perversity and the, the wickedness of man's heart and the things that, that they're doing, seeking evil continuously, right? We even said, he says, even when we read it here, he says, hey, I know they seek evil continuously, but I, 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 won't, I won't destroy every living thing this way again, right? He, so God knows the heart of man. And he sits there and, and, he, and he does this, and yet we're gone, and this ark I don't, this isn't thus saith the Lord, this is just me. I'm wondering, I believe they're going to discover, you got to understand the, the location of this is everything. It's on Mount Ararat, it's in Turkey. What else is in Turkey? It's Islam. It's one of the main places that they practice Islam. And what does the Quran teach? The Quran teaches that the boat, the ark, would have landed in a separate mountain. If, in fact, the ark, and I believe with everything that I am, because the scripture says it's an Ararat, that boat's an Ararat. And it's on that peak. And someday, and there's been people all throughout the centuries, Josephus in 1940s, World War II, people have taken uh, photos. Uh, Pastor Joe uh, in Calvary Chapel, Philly, I told you he almost took a trip there. And he's got uh, recently unclassified classified documents that became unclassified that he's shown pictures to their fellowship. I'm going to try to get a copy of those for us here that we can look and you can kind of see. It's a one-to-scale image of something that looks to be near a glacier, near the top of the peak, exactly kind of like dare I use the term, rested on the side like this. And you're sitting there going, now what else could be sitting directly on the side of a mountain that's a one-to-scale image, one-to-six scale image that would match the ark exactly? They've been able to see wood and grain from it via satellite image. So it's no question of whether there's wood compound or wood structure. They know that's what it is. Now, you could say, well, 2,000 years, it could be a lot of things. 450 feet, right? Bigger than three football fields. People aren't throwing that on their back and carrying it up 15,000 feet or 17,000 feet to a mountain. I mean, we have to think of the supernatural here to this. I mean, God rested it there. And it's quite amazing. And so I have no doubt that we're out of here, we're raptured up, and all of a sudden, something thaws, something changes, and this ark is sitting there. And they're like, cover the ark. Somebody cover. I mean, how do you cover an ark? You can't cover the ark. God, if he wanted to put it in a place to preserve it, for such a time as this where humans couldn't get to it to destroy it, Mount Ararat's perfect, man. I mean, it's, it's, it's ideal location. And not only that, but the minute it's discovered that way and everybody's like, oh, we found the ark. What happens to the Quran? It's debunked. Because it's all wrong. It's wrong. It's, it, it, we know it's already wrong. We know it's a cult. But, I mean, it's proved now. Look, it said it this. I thought it was divinely inspired. Clearly it's not. So throw out the book, you know, and maybe people turn to Christ in such a time as that, and they'll receive Jesus. I mean, who knows? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Again, this isn't thus saith the Lord. But how cool would that be? And how cool is it that we're going to be at the wedding feast of the Lamb, man? 
And we're going to probably sit there praying with God, and Jesus is going to go, you want to know what I'm going to do? You'll be like, my pastor, he said it. No, I'm just joking. No, but I'm just teasing you. But how cool would that be? I mean, it's the highest you know, mountain in that region, and there's no reason we shouldn't think that it would be an excellent place to be preserved. I mean, like I said, there's been numerous travelers and explorers that have gone and have, have, you know, Josephus wrote about it. He said they used to come and pull the wood off and take the scraping of the, because it was, it was like a tar or the covering, inside and out. Why would he have done that to the ark if he didn't want to preserve it? We put, we put it on the outside. When we want to waterproof something on a boat, we would put the tar or that kind of material on the outside of the boat, not inside. Why would we do it? We don't do that. But if you want to preserve something, you seal it on both sides for such a time as this. Again, it's, it's, it's amazing. And Josephus wrote about how they would come and scrape it off, and they would bring it back and reuse it. He was a Jewish historian. And in verse 4, it tells us that it rested. And I think that's just sweet, just as we're to rest in the Lord and His truth. Verse 5, And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountain were seen. So it came to pass at the end of the forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and then he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth, and he sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. And she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days and then again sent out the dove out of the ark. Then the dove came back to him in evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And no one knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him anymore. So think about the time that it took Adam, or excuse me, I always want to say Adam, Noah, forgive me. It took time it took Noah to disembark from this ark here. I mean, it was almost seven months Roughly 371 days, when you think about the entire period of everything that had gone down. It's over, over a year. I mean, after approximately two and a half months, it says that they could see the top of the mountains. And this whole endeavor was almost 100 plus years, because when Noah started building the ark, how old was he? 500, remember? And now we see that he doesn't finish till he's 600 and something. This whole thing happens. When you back into the timeline, Henry Morris has got a great book called the, um, I think it's called the Genesis Record, I believe. Genesis, well, we had it in our bookstore. And it goes through and it literally goes through the dates. And I mean, literally backs right in perfectly. It's amazing how perfect it is. And, and God's given us so much detail in his word that we can back right into it. And so 40 days later, Noah, Noah does what? He releases a raven. Now, why, why a raven? Why a raven first? Raven's a what? It's a scavenger bird. A raven has no problem landing on something that's unclean. You see that? But a dove, a dove will not let her foot touch anything unclean. It's very true. Actually, get a dove, you'll see it. A dove will not land something unclean. A raven, a scavenger, doesn't care. So if there's a dead carcass or something from the deluge that was still out there for whatever reason, the raven has no problem landing on that. The raven doesn't come back. So we see that, right? 
No problem resting on an unclean service. A week later, it tells us, right in Scripture here, it says, he releases a dove, and the dove returns, right? But why? Because it was unwilling to rest on anything unclean, like the raven would, right? In verse 9. And a week later, Noah again releases a dove, and this time she returns with an olive leaf. It was freshly plucked, verse 11, telling Noah that what? The waters receded. Now, it's interesting, because of all the trees that Noah could have you know, had received, an olive tree is crazy hardy. I don't know if you've ever looked at it. They're very hardy trees. Very, very hardy trees. Germinate very quickly. I mean, the whole thing with an olive tree, they're awesome. I mean, olive oil. Who doesn't love olive oil, right? I mean, it's, it makes me think of Israel. You go over to Israel, right? You know, I, I listen to Pastor Tony. I was talking. It's just the olive oil in your Israel. You eat the falafel and then just the oil just dripping all over you. You're just like, you know. Um, I did it again. I got sidetracked with food. But I mean, you, I mean, this is awesome. This is the pure olive oil. So here it is. It's a hardy tree. And, you know, the question is, could it remain alive underwater? That's the question. And it can, actually. Well, you might be saying, well, pastor, that's, wait a minute, that's five months. Five months of continuous downpour. Is it possible? So it's interesting. You think about it. With the water flooding, right, first of all, where was the olive tree? Could it have been on directly on top of the mountain? So maybe it was only underwater a little bit for a short period of time? Is that possible? Yeah, but not likely. Why? Because olive trees don't survive in conditions that are lower than 50 degrees Fahrenheit. They like to be in conditions 50 degrees Fahrenheit and above, which is probably why it wasn't at the peak or point of the top of Mount Ararat, because, oh, by the way, if you haven't seen it and look at the pictures, there's glaciers. It's like negative, right? It's 30. It's really cold. Go on the top of any high elevation mountain. It's cold. I mean, there's ice caps, the whole thing. So it probably wasn't there. But what if it was three to 5,000 feet in elevation, where the waters was they were climbing, but they would, remember, they receded very quickly. Is it possible that the olive tree could have survived? The answer is yes. We can, we can do that. We can take an olive tree, submerge it in water, and actually have it survive. It's quite amazing. It's also possible, though, because the olive tree would germinate. Remember how fertile the ground is. If you take seed and you go out in your lawn, let's just use lawn seed as an example. What is the first thing on the bag of lawn seed that it tells you to do? Well, tenderize water. It wants you to go up and disturb the dirt. It wants you to scrape it up, loosen it up, create loose, fertile dirt. Why? So that the seed can take root and grow and germinate. What did God just do? I mean, we have sediment going everywhere, flowing everywhere. Dirt's mixing, the whole thing. Water's draining so quickly. And I mean, you've got this fertile, and all it takes is a leaf to just... I mean, anybody want proof of, of something that can grow through winter? Look at weeds. We've talked about it before. Look at weeds that grow in your garden or in your grass. You don't, you, the winter doesn't kill it. I mean, the weed seed might look like it's gone. Next spring, what happens? It blossoms again. And then what's it do? It goes airborne, whether it's through birds, through you know, droppings, whatever. I don't want to be gross, but you know, it, it travels. The point is, and that's how they think how many of the weed seeds came over here from Europe as an example. Through many of the explorers that have traveled over here, it was on the boats, it was on their shoes. I mean, these things happen. So here we are. Noah is on this boat, this quick draining like that, and you've got a leaf. And all it does is take in this really fertile ground. He's still in the boat two and a half months, right? When you think about from the time, because it was four months, we know seven months total. So he's still in the boat for this period of time. It's germinating. 
The dove goes out, sees this fresh olive leaf, and all he does is bring it back to Noah. Very, very possible. Not a problem. Makes a lot of sense. And especially if it was up 5,000 feet in elevation, it would have been, first of all, it wouldn't have flooded as long, or it would have drained as quick, you know, quicker as well. So I think it's pretty amazing to see. I don't know, when we get up to heaven, we'll have to ask the Lord exactly, how did you keep that olive tree alive, or how did you germinate it so quickly? That's awesome, you know? It's one of those things that we just, we don't know all the exact details of it. Look at verse 13. It says, And it came to pass that in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and indeed the surfaces on the ground was dry. So now, now Noah sees it himself. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Right? So Noah waited, if you're following where we were, Noah waited still another 29 days to the first day of the month. 314 days at this point after the flood began to remove the ark's covering. So what's this covering of the ark? Well, I imagine because he's going out the window and he's li- it's got to be something to do with the roof. There was some type of covering that must have been over the roof because we know that there was a window. So in, if, if you think of the, the ark like a barge, that's the best thing, or like a shoebox in shape. Again, it's not what we see in the, in the nurseries where they've got you know, little coned kind of boats that... No, it, it was more like a big barge. And if you picture it and you see it, the way the dimensions, it told us if we remember where it says the ark was prepared, that it was, you know, 450 feet, and then it says you shall make it with lower decks. And, and we also see there was a period of an area there where there was a window. So there was this bump up and out where there would have been, like, if you look at the rest of the shoebox, there's this little elevated area. And I can't remember the exact cubits. We can go back and look at it here. But let's see. And height is 30 cubits. You shall make a window of the ark, and it shall be finished to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark. So 18 inches. A cubit's roughly in 18, 18 inches. So if we look at that, that was verse in chapter 6, verse roughly around um, 16. And you could see, so there was this little cubit in height where there would have been this window that was placed, this 18 inches, that would have been on top of this barge. And somehow Noah had covered that. He put a, a covering over it, and he gets out, and he removes this covering, and when he does it, all of a sudden he's able to see. He can see for himself now. But can you imagine this moment? This is not the earth he remembered. Seven billion people, we estimate, were living before the flood. We have 7.2 to 7.4 billion. I mean, look how populated our earth is. Right? If we went up to a high mountain, we look out, we see people, we see cities, we see... I mean, this is what Noah saw before he went into the ark, and that door was closed. Now he comes out, first of all, he sees all these oceans, all these big land, you know, water basins that weren't there before. It was, it was all this land. Now, he's, now we see so much less land, but more water basins. He must feel wind. For the first time, he never felt wind. He was in the ark. Wind was hitting the ark, but he didn't feel it. It was, it was airtight. It's watertight. So here he is. He comes out and he looks, and it's all new. It's all foreign to him. And he, he's probably like, Lord, what is this? And I, I, he's up in an elevation. Is it cold? You know, is it cold because he's up 17,000 feet? Is it, is it freezing there yet? I don't know. But, but everything was different. And how does he respond? And what, is, what, is, what does God do? God's going to tell him, Get out of the ark. Can you imagine, would you have naturally wanted to leave? I mean, you were just in this ark. 
It's everything you knew for five months. You just went through a very traumatic and catastrophic experience. Everything that you knew had fundamentally changed in five months. That's home base. You know what I mean? That's home base. Do you want to just leave home base? No. You make that your home base and you might kind of venture out a little bit. Go back to home base, right? A little bit more. Go back to home. No. Get out. Go. Walk by faith. So I think sometimes we skip over and we forget that this was, he sees all this dry ground, but it's so different and he probably didn't have word to see these vast plains, where'd they go, and these, now these great bodies of water. And still yet, he waits another 57 days. According to Dr. Henry Morris's account, and that's how we get the total of 371 days, a little more than a year. And again, we, we don't know the exact chronology that way of, of all. I mean, we do our best to, you know, I think the commentators do the best. But, I mean, the, the level of detail, it's actually amazing. And this isn't just a story. This isn't something that we read our kids at bed at night and say, oh, isn't that cute, you know, Noah and the little boat and the little animals. This is a historical account. You know, I can remember when I used to teach children ministry years ago, and I used to, I used to tell the young kids when they would come in, and I would... You know, I'd sit down and we'd, we'd go through the teaching and, and they'd go, you know, well, they'd say, Pastor Matt, that was, that was a great story. That was a great story. And I used to look at the kids and I said, no, that's a great account. That happened just as God said it did. Just as he perfectly preserved it in his word. And just as we read in 2 Peter 3, 6, that the old, word had, old world had completely perished. And all things were made new. I mean, think about that. The animals, the plants, the human life, all that was destroyed, and only what was in that ark, only what was in that ark, would be what would be multiplied and repopulated. That's why there is no such thing as racism. There is no such thing as getting caught up in real ethnicity that way. That's man-made. Those, Noah, his wife, his three boys and their wives, they got off the boat. There was no other living being. All procreation came from Noah and the boys and their wives, specifically their wives. It all came. There is no such thing as racism. There is no other race. There is not Noah, his boys, the wives. There's nothing else. You know, I always say, oh, I'm Italian, man. You know what? This is our heritage. This is, is this your heritage? Do you, do you rest on it? This is your heritage, Christian. This is, this is where our, four, you don't talk about forefathers. This is where our forefathers and foremothers came from. From that ark. And we all share the same gene pool that way. That's why we say we're brothers and sisters. We really are brothers and sisters and cousins. We're all related in some capacity. It's amazing. It's amazing to think how it was all done in this new world. Then God spoke to Noah. Hmm. Can you imagine Noah's finally like, Lord, I did not see this coming. Lord, there are no words. And if God would have tried to explain it to Noah, would he have understood it anyway? Would he have been able to comprehend any of this? How many times in our lives do we go through unexpected trials? 
circumstances. Often, huh? If God tried to explain to us, would we understand? Probably not. Would we think it's for our best? I mean, I'm sure if Noah got off that ark, I'm sure he's not looking around going, this is a better thing, what you did here, Lord. This is, this, this is better now. Everything's changed. My brother, he's gone. My uncles, they're all gone. Grandpa passed away, Methuselah, that was his grandpa, passed away one week, seven days before the flood. Here I'm the patriarch now, Lord. I don't know what I'm doing. Everything that we had, a modern society, I mean, seven billion people, you had civilization, you had modern things. Infrastructure, gone, everything gone. Our circumstances change. Our God never does. And it doesn't matter whether you're living 5,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, today. Our God is the same. Our circumstances change. Our God doesn't. And just as we don't understand it, just as Noah didn't understand it, he walked by faith. He walked with God. And that's, that's the beauty of it all. It goes back to what he said in chapter 6, verse 9. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Why? Here's why. Because Noah walked with God. Are you walking with God? Am I walking with God? Because whatever circumstance should befall us, if we're walking with God, he'll get us through it. And it'll be for our own, you know, betterment because we'll be refined. And certainly it will be for his glory if we rest in him and give him all that he's due. You see that? I mean, there really is victory in Jesus Christ. No matter what happens to us. A failing body, failing heart, failing mind, failing eyesight. All these things that can happen. We have Jesus Christ. And so, I'm sure it was void and empty, and he looked at it, and he's probably happy he didn't see the dinosaurs anymore. No. Maybe he had one on the ark. Maybe that was one of those animals. He's like, yes, let's sacrifice the dinosaur. I don't know, you know. But clearly the lust vegetation was all gone. There's no more climate to support that. It's not like the lush vegetation that he had grown up seeing in the, you know, in, you know, prior, you know, in the antediluvian period. There was none of that anymore. I mean, some of us, you know, I remember going to Central America uh, with Dave, and uh, we went over there to serve on a missions trip, and I remember walking through the jungle. And I mean, it was gorgeous. It was lush. And I thought, I'd never seen leaves this, I mean, big leaves that are like this big. They're, I mean, huge. And you take the machete, and I mean, Literally, we're with this, you know, this young boy. He's 12 years old. And he's got the machete. And he's, I mean, he literally cannot get through the jungle that way. And he's chopping things down, looking around. And, and I'm just thinking, Lord, I wonder if this was a little bit of like what Eden was like initially. Or maybe part of the antediluvian period. Where the climate and the tropic was just right to kind of breed this. Really thick grass, kind of. As you, go to, you notice you go south. The grass gets thicker, too. I mean, things change based on temperature, based on, you know, environmental variables. Everything was different. I mean, 
was so dramatically different. I mean, maybe that plunged it into a, uh, an ice age. Maybe, you know, we've often thought that that's where, you know, such animals like the dinosaurs, you know, revealed in the fossil record. Maybe it was the ice age because, again, we didn't have extreme colds like that. And so after this, now you've got wind, you've got extreme colds, north and south poles and the equator, and you've got variants in between all of a sudden. It can absolutely create an ice age. And that could absolutely lead to where you'd have, again, fossilization, quick destruction without decay. It's, it's all possible. So again, think about the, the changes. I mean, a couple things that I, I sort of noted and we'll pick up with our time here. Um, ten things in particular. The oceans, right? They would have been vast. The firmament above. Think about the sky that Noah saw. Before that, you had that vapor or that firmament in the cloud, that water barrier that protected from the radiation, that blocked some of the radiation from the outer space that hits us today. Because we know that we saw periods of 900, 800 years lifespan in the antediluvian period. After the deluge, after the flood, lifespans go down to lifespans we see today. Because we're bombarded with radiation and rays and electromagnetic and everything else that's part of that. Our DNA, right, splices and continues to break down. So, you know, think about just the change of the firmament, how the sky must have looked. You know, that spear of water must have sort of the sun, the way that, you know, Noah must have looked at the sun. It must have seemed so much brighter. You know, more, more like, whoa, I mean, maybe even for the first time, he understood what a sunburn was. You know, maybe Noah was the first one to create sunglasses. I don't know. But, I mean, you think about it, right? I mean, it's all new. Everything had changed. I mean, the land areas were smaller. So all this that vast land area they had, you know, now it's 71% of the earth is water. You know, maybe that's why we don't have the large behemoths or the dinosaur, because with the reduced land mass, maybe there wasn't enough space as we had before. You know, last habitation for all land creatures. Good for the water creatures, right? The, the water creatures are like, thumbs up, man. Or, well, they don't have thumbs, but they're like, fins up, man. I mean, they're loving it. It's awesome, right? I mean, they're in the water. They're like, hey, finally we got our day. I don't know. I mean, the, the severe temperature differentials in seasons, huge change. That's number four. Possibly a more rugged topography. I mean, again, as I mentioned before, you've got these caverns. You've got, I mean, think about the basins that were created. I mean, you know, the massive change in variation of land where you have great valleys and great peaks and topology or, type of, you know, all the changes that would have never been, that would have been sort of flat before, kind of like a plain would now change. You know, think out, like I said, go out west. Look at the Grand Canyon. Look at places like that. And look at just the changes there. Right? Winds, storms, rain, snow. You know? Noah had to learn how to make a snowsuit. Didn't have snowsuits before. What's that look like? Right? Uniform temperatures, no more. Radiation from space, environmental factors. Again, reducing the lifespan. Number eight, glaciers. No, I didn't know what a glacier was. Canyons, like I said, the Grand Canyon. The same glacier that God would use to preserve possibly that ark by encasing it in a glacier so that man couldn't get to it to destroy it so that there would be a sign for the judgment to come. 
Because those that would look at the ark would remember that that was salvation. That was a type of salvation because judgment had come. And that those that don't place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will receive that same judgment because of the wickedness of man's heart. God never sends anyone to hell. Man's rejection of Jesus Christ is what sends someone to hell. Seismic activity, shifting of the plates, resulting in volcanic activity and earthquakes. Didn't know what earthquakes were before. You've been out to California, you know what earthquakes are. Volcanic activity, right? I mean, Mount Ararat is, like I said, one of two volcanic cones. It's quite interesting. Again, lush gardens. What about all the food they had before? With the lush gardens and everything that was there, the seeds, the, 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 the things that they had come used to. Noah got out of the ark and probably was like, what's for dinner tonight? You know? Soup's on, right? Or whatever they were cooking. I mean, they had to figure it out. They didn't, there was no herbs. I mean, whatever he brought into that ark, you know, that was it. God took care of the rest. And so we read, as we read in verse 17, it says that Noah and his family got out of the ark and they were to be what? Fruitful and multiply on the earth. Who else was given that commandment first? Adam and Eve. You see, this is important. And the reason I'm highlighting this with you is because when we get into chapter 11, this is going to become very important because this is going to be a specific area of disobedience. They were told to be fruitful and multiply on the earth. They were told to spread out. And then we're going to get to chapter 11 and we're going to read about a city. And we're going to read about a man by the name of Nimrod. And he's going to gather them all together in a big city. What did God say to do? Spread out and multiply. What did the wickedness of man do? Gathered together. And what's he build? A tower, an idol to exalt man's, that's right, himself, man's glory. It's because of direct disobedience right here we see in verse 17. So the sons and the wives, they're to procreate throughout all the earth. And the animals, again, they awaken for the hibernation. They would have gone out and done the same thing, procreate. And all the new scents and sights, I can imagine the animals looking around, you know, like a dog walking in a room, forgets why he walks in the room, walks out. I mean, all this experience, walking into pirates of various lands and every, I mean, all new. You know, we see rapid variations of kind. Notice with me, this is not evolution. We don't see a kind changing to another kind. But we see created variations of DNA. In other words, things that were already present within the DNA, the kind, had variants. And we see that variant spread to different kinds. A wolf, eventually, a dog. We don't see a wolf become a bird, right? We don't see anything like that in any fossil record anywhere in science. That's why evolution is a philosophy, not God's wisdom. Let's look at verse 20. So then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar, and the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not seed. First of all, I think... It's interesting, the first thing Noah does when he gets off the ark, what's he do? 
builds an altar. This is the first place we see an altar in the Bible. And Noah goes back to exactly what he understood before this, which was a sacrificial system. We saw Cain and Abel have a sacrificial system as entering into the presence of God, right? But it was always by faith. It wasn't the necessary animal. It was always by faith. It was the heart, the right heart that Abel had, which Cain grew jealous of and murdered his brother because of it. So Noah builds his ark. He leaves the ark, and what's he do? He wants to worship God. Isn't that the right response? I mean, gratitude, admiration. Isn't that what we should be like? I mean, we, we, God blesses us every day. Our response, I don't know about you, but I wake up in the morning, and I, I have songs in my mind. I, I start singing. To just, you know, you keep your eyes closed. You're not yet out of bed. You know what I mean? You're sort of just coming to. And you just hear, you know, scripture. Or you hear songs, and you just start singing to the Lord and blessing his holy name. It's our right response. We don't have to think about it. It's not premeditated. When you spend time in his word and you love to worship his holy name, it just... It just comes, it's beautiful. And that's, that's what Noah did. It was the first thing Noah did. It, it, was, it was natural for Noah to worship God and praise him that way. And what's he do? He takes the first, well, he takes of every clean animal and every clean bird, it says. And, I mean, you think about it. I mean, this was a costly offering of, to God. I mean, this was his creation. I mean, ever since Eden, we saw the sacrifice of blood, Right? And this is how it was practiced. Noah had taken one animal, remember that? Seven of each clean kind to offer burnt offerings. He took the two pairs and they went to procreate, but the seventh would be used of every clean animal as a sacrifice. And how does God respond? He says in verse 21, it smelled as a soothing aroma. You see that? I like that. The sacrifices were praise and propitiation. Great faith on Noah's part. I'm sure, again, put yourself in Noah's position for a moment. Maybe he was thinking to himself, well, these six animals are going to go out and they're going to go. I mean, they're free, right? They're going to go procreate. What am I going to eat? Remember, he didn't have a garden yet. There was nothing there. Was he thinking, how am I going to provide for myself? Was he caught up in man's wisdom? Well, God, I know. Remember, Saul had that problem. Remember Saul in the Old Testament in the Bible? That was his sin. You know, well, Lord, there were these animals, and I, you know, he didn't listen and obey God. He took six of the animals, let them free. But Noah didn't turn around and say, well, Lord, I, you know, I don't know how I'm going to eat tomorrow. If I sacrifice all these animals, is there going to be any meat or food for my kids, my wife, my family? I mean, you do want me to procreate and multiply, Lord. So, I mean, if you want me to do that, I should probably take half of these animals to guarantee what you want me. You see how it works? We can do that, can't we? We can begin to justify disobeying God. Because ultimately we know what God wants and His desire, and then we start thinking about it. Well, Lord, if I do it this way, I, I really am trying to follow you, Lord, but I'm twisting it. I'm not, I'm not really obeying. And here's a great example of where Noah was all in. He had given everything that he, he says, okay, it's all yours, Lord. I, I know I don't have it. It all comes from you anyway. Down to the last animal. And then he's watching the other three pairs run off, and he's like, there's breakfast, lunch, dinner. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, breakfast. Yeah, I mean, you know he's thinking about it. I mean, put yourself in his position. You would be too. And yet, what is his heart? 
His heart is a heart of thanksgiving. His heart is a heart of worship. He's not holding on to him for himself. He's not trying to fill his barn house. It's all God's. And he trusts God because he's grown up watching God provide. He went into an ark that God provided. I mean, if anybody understood God could provide, it's Noah. He just took him through a massive flood. Do you think there was any doubt? You see, sacrifices are something we're called to do, right? God said it should cost us something. He told us in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says what? He says, we should present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. The giving of our resources in Philippians 4.8, he tells us we, we should be joyful, happy, cheerful givers. We're to give of our resources. We're to do that. We're not to, we're not to turn around and try to figure it out. We're not trying to use man's logic. Well, Lord, you know, I'll do this if you do that. And we start bartering, you know. God, God doesn't want that. You see, God wants sacrifice from us because it shows that we're being conformed to his image. It shows that we're trusting in him. It's the greatest display of our ultimate sacrifice. It's not just the resources we give financially. I mean, that's all great, and praise the Lord for that, but it's our hearts. It's our hearts. It begins in our hearts. And that's always but what God has said. I mean, may, you know, may we think like David. I started thinking of David in the Old Testament, you know, King David. Remember, he was in 2 Samuel chapter 24, if you're taking notes, 2 Samuel chapter 24, 24 and verse 25. He went and he went to buy a piece of land. And the guy's like, oh, no, no, I'll give it to you. I'll get it. And he says, no, if it doesn't cost me anything, I, I won't buy it. It's got to co it cost me something because then I can sacrifice. See, I, th I think that's the right heart. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, he said, We should be like Jesus, that we should walk in love as Christ also had loved us and given himself for us as an offering, as a sacrifice to God. And he uses similar terminology, as a sweet-smelling aroma. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. Noah's costly sacrifice pleased God. It's awesome. I mean, you, wanna, you want a good text or passage of what it's like to praise and worship God, this is it. This is it. Noah was all in. I mean, it was, the, it, was, it was right from his heart. And God's response was awesome. This is how I know God likes barbecue. You know, this is... <laughs> Sorry. Uh, people in the front are going, Pastor Matt, come on. But this is where the covenant was established. You start to see the covenant here. And we see it confirmed in Genesis chapter 9, verse 11. Verse 21 starts it. And we talked about covenants before. Susan Vashrel, this is a term that really goes back to a time when a king would make a promise to his subjects. Or a treaty between kings. And it depended on obedience to the specific terms. Think of it as a conditional promise. And then you have a royal grant. And that's what we see here. And that's, unlike the Susan Vassar Agreement, it's, it requires no act, uh, no response on a part of the beneficiary. It's an unconditional promise given from one party to another. We see that here. He says, 
I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy everything as I have done before. Next time it will be with fire. It won't be with water. And then he tells us cold. We see this winter right. Well, the earth remains sea time, harvest, cold heat, winter, summer, all day, night shall not cease. I mean, this speaks of the profound, again, climatic or climate and ecological changes and since the blanket was emptied and I mean, we in central Pennsylvania understand temperature variation, don't we? I don't think we need a, a lesson other than being from Rochester, New York, where we really understand temperature variations with the dumping of snow that we get. It's easy for us to understand, but there's a promise here too. Did you capture this promise? How many environmentalists are so worried? All these people are worried about global warming or this or that and what it's going to do and how it's going to change and we're not going to have seasons anymore and we'll go to a one season. It won't be, it'll be, you know, where it's just hot all the time or just cold. My Bible tells me while the earth remains, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night shall not cease. We're told that the seasons aren't going to cease. No matter how much we want to, look at there's nothing wrong with recycling, there's nothing wrong with doing all those great things. But God provides for the earth. God is the hand that keeps the earth spinning, the air, the atmosphere, everything that we have. God is the author and finisher of that work. And it's not until God ends the earth, he tells us, that we won't have these seasonal changes. And I just thank you, Lord, for his promises because every morning we wake up and we don't have to go, Lord, is the sun going to come up or am I going to go through another ice age? You know, there's people that throughout history have said, oh, we're, we're doomed, we're heading for another ice age. As a matter of fact, you listen to some of the weather channels now and they're like, well, it's ripe. You know, as is global warming, we're heading to real tropical type of, you know, in, in Rochester, New York, it's going to be like it is in Florida in 20 years. No, you're wrong. How do you know? Because my Bible tells me so tells me it will always have seasonal changes. Now, could things change in certain areas? In sure, of course. But we're always going to have this cyclical change. That's a great promise. Doesn't that, tonight you go home, you don't have to worry about all these, you know, people that are the weather, this, that, and the other. Lord, if you want it to rain, make it rain. If you want it to snow, make it snow. God, I pray for Central PA, 70 degrees for the next eight months, Lord. That's my prayer tonight. But you know what I mean? God's in control. And so as we, you can stand as we, as we study here and we look at what God has for us, if we would just rest on his promises, if we would just take moments to go through and look at all the things he's done, the way he's preserved humanity, specifically Noah, his children, the way that he took care of Noah and the circumstances at the time is the same thing he's going to do for you and I. He's our father and he's a good, good father. That's who he is. We sing that praise song, don't we? You're a good, good father. That's who you are. And I'm loved by you. Praise the Lord for that. Let's stand and thank God. Thank you for your patience. We went 10 minutes over tonight. I appreciate it. But I just, we didn't want to rush. There's so much in this chapter. We really could have done this chapter over two different uh, studies. But hopefully you're coming out of here tonight going, wow, Lord, I... I never really thought about all the things you've done. All the ways that you have just taken care of us before we even understood how you take care of us. You, you do it and it's miraculous every single day. You, you want to see a miracle?
Wake up tomorrow morning. Let your feet touch the ground. That's the first miracle of the day. Close your eyes at night. Watch as your body sustains itself and you keep breathing without having to go and breathe. That's the second miracle at least that you have every day. God is so good. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your historical account, Lord. Thank you for preserving Noah and his line, Lord. Because, Lord, if you didn't do that, we wouldn't be here. Thank you, God, that you didn't create division through race or ethnicity that way, God. Thank you that you're a loving God and you're a God of unity. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you that tonight as we go home and we put our our heads on our pillows and we begin to rest tonight, that we've got to witness all the miracles you've been doing for all the years of our lives and so much longer, Lord, five or 6,000 years since you created the earth. Thank you, God, for sustaining it all. For without you, we'd, we'd be nowhere. And thank you again, Jesus, for your work on that cross, your redeeming work. Thank you for the type, the ark that you've given us to tell us about impending judgment, but to also tell us that there is always a way, a narrow way. And that's you, Jesus Christ. That was the ark for Noah and his family, and that's for every believer, every unbeliever that will turn their hearts to you, Jesus, even tonight, Lord. And that confess your name, believe on you, can receive this same salvation that we all have here tonight. God, that's our prayer that your word would go out, that those that would need to hear it, Lord, whether it be in their cars and the website, wherever it is, God, in this church, minister to your people, Lord. Encourage them. We just thank you, Jesus. We have hearts of thanksgiving, just as Noah. In your holy name we pray this, Jesus Christ. Amen.